Well, if it ain't broke, my very first guitar, 1986, I think October is when I got it. It was a Sears guitar. You know, you order. It was back in those days where, you know, living in rural BC, the only way, you know, you know getting that Sears Christmas catalog was like the most amazing thing in the world. The whole middle section was just toys and stuff, right? Well, I carried instruments back in the 80s too, and there was this... I just figured, that's the guitar. I, I was working a job, I can buy that one. Well, no sooner did I get it, it was like a you know sunburst, looked like a Fender Stratocaster. But boy, it didn't look like a pointy rock and roll guitar. Yeah, you sure did. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. <laughs> Rob's seen my latest Facebook page. <laughs> But boy, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't black, it wasn't cool, it was just this, it looked like some country Joe guitar, and I was like, oh, this has got to change. So no sooner did I get it than I stripped it down, ripped off the paint, and tried to repaint it and put it back together. And it kind of worked, but it kind of didn't, because I didn't, you know, I had to take wiring stuff apart, and I didn't know how to hook it up, right? You know, you only think about putting it back together after it's already apart. You don't, like... Nowadays, I take pictures before I take stuff apart. <laughs> That's the smart thing to do. <clears throat> Didn't have that back then. But then I went a step further and I went, okay, the body shape's totally wrong. So I, I had this buddy in Woodshop who, who was a guitar player too. And I said, hey, can you make me a, a like, let's, let's make, I had it all drawn out. Let's make this body. And, and it was like out of black walnut. Super hard, dad's remembering this because we had to get router bits and even the carbide bits like burnt out trying to route this thing out. You know, it was a solid piece of wood which I painted like with red and black stripes over this beautiful walnut. But anyway, the body itself, you know, I cut it out and I'm like, oh, there's three pickups but I only have room for two because I had this kind of cool zigzaggy design on the body. So, you know, cut out the thing for the bridge, bolted the neck on, put the two pickups on because that's all it would fit and then it would not play in tune at all. <laughs> like, it, the, the, nothing. As soon as you pressed a finger, you could have all the strings in tune. As soon as you pressed a finger down, it was all out of whack. So I had a friend of mine take it to a guitar shop in Calgary and he looked at it and went, ha, <laughs> that's funny. Here, there's only one way to... Uh, there, there, there's critical measurements. You notice these, all of these aren't the same length apart, right? They get increasingly smaller. There's a real complex little mathematical formula for that. But the distance between the bridge here and the 12th fret, which is here, and the distance to here has to be identical for it to play in tune, for the math to work. So I had made this guitar body and the bridge was like here. So there's no way it could play in tune. But I was sure that I could, you know, in grade 10, <laughs> fix something to make it better than what I got. And it didn't work out so well. And then I was guitarless for a while until a friend of mine gave me a guitar I still have to this day. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But what if, in fact, it is broke? Israel has been living with judges for a few generations now, right? We've been through the book of Judges. We were into Samuel. Samuel is the last in the line of the judges. 
But like Eli the priest, succession didn't go so well. Remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas? We looked at those guys two weeks ago. Here's the priest of, of God, the priest of Yahweh, and his sons are taking, they're, they're not following God at all. Well, Samuel doesn't fare any better. End of chapter, or, or the beginning of chapter 8 in Samuel. Samuel chapter 8, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 5 here. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The names of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Yeah, pastor's kids. <laughs> Actually, I've been thinking about this, and you know, you look at almost any one of the leaders in, in the Bible, and their kids don't really follow in their footsteps. You know, and we get to the New Testament, and we know Peter had a wife, but we don't know his kids' names. Paul's the only guy that really talks a lot about parenting and marriage, but he's single. I don't know. Like, like Peter doesn't mention much. The, the other apostles, they just don't mention their kids. It's like, I don't know, maybe that's on purpose. <laughs> anyway, what happens here? Samuel's sons, who he appointed as judges, aren't doing the job. So what happens next? Verse 4. Then all the elders of, the Israel, of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to be judge over us like all the nations. So here's all the elders of Israel, those who should be leading their tribes, their clans, and their families. They see a problem. This, this judge's thing isn't working. It's broke. We need to fix this. We need something else. So, so let's look around and let's see what, what's working around us. Huh, kingship and monarchy seems to be doing okay. Still really dry. <clears throat> so let's try that. Let's try something else. We have a solution, Samuel. Appoint for us a king. Now, as I thought about this this week, and I, I thought about just even verse 4 and their request, I had to stop and think. And I thought, I wonder if the first misstep that has happened here is not that they were asking for a king, but these elders of Israel were not fulfilling their leadership roles. Look at verse 4 again. All the elders of Israel gathered together, all of them. And the question was not, what do we need to do to lead well? They basically said, look, Samuel's a failure. We need to fix this. We need somebody else. Here we have the leaders of Israel abdicating their responsibility. And in the bigger picture, this is consistent with how God's people functioned throughout history. Remember what happened in Exodus 20? God proclaims the Ten Commandments to all the people, and the people say, oh, no, 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 you go and get the word of God for us, and then speak to us, but don't let God speak to us ever again. 
but you were to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's reverence here, yes, but is that, and that is appropriate, but there's also an abdication of their calling to be a royal priesthood to the nations. It seems to me God's purposes and desires for his people right from Sinai was that there was not to be a singular prophet, priest, or king, but that the people of God as a community of faith under his sovereign leadership and lordship would be a people that both hears the word, speaks the word, intercedes for the world as his priesthood, and leads people to love and serve him in holiness and righteousness, reflecting his character and how they live and lead. But they were constantly looking for a way out. Moses, you speak to us. Saul, you lead us. And if it goes wrong, well, let's just look at the leader, blame him, and replace him, and hopefully we get a better one next time. Every election. We constantly look for other leaders for the results we want. And we don't have the courage to take responsibility and leadership in our own lives. All the elders of Israel come and request a king. They abdicate their leadership. So the first issue in the emergence of the monarchy in Israel is not the request for a king, but their abdication of responsibility as the leaders under God's holy rule and righteousness. And the second issue here is that the elders of the people are asking to be like the other nations. Now they were called to be set apart, holy, a, a, a nation dedicated to God. They were to live and to lead differently. They were to govern themselves differently than the nations around them. And they would be an example of what life looks like under the leadership of God the creator of all. Their demand for a king like the other nations is a rejection, not only of God as king, but also of their identity as a unique people of God. And thirdly, they not only reject their identity as God's people and their responsibility as God's leaders, they also reject God's chosen leaders. Look at what they are asking for. Give us a king to judge us. Okay, the judges thing, we know we need a judge. We need somebody to enforce the law. What God's giving us isn't working, so we'll try something else. We got our own solution. They know they need leadership. That's clear. They just don't think that the way it's been going is working, so they're trying to fix it. See, God's been raising up judges for generations. God appointed the judges. He empowered them. He equipped them. He called them even though each of them demonstrates their own brokenness and sinfulness and humanness at the same time. Remember Samson. Judges 2.16, right at the beginning of the, the whole judges cycles, the, the, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. If you keep reading, it was like, but then the judge died and they went back to doing whatever they wanted again. See, the judges God raised up fail at various points in their work. Even when it's successful, it doesn't last. God's people end up rebelling, being led away into idolatry. They continually break covenant with God, and they end up in servitude to other nations. Even the best human leaders fail. Is God not communicating something clearly enough? Human leaders 
will fail us every time to some degree. The people of God cannot live holy lives as a community of faith if they simply depend on human leaders to make it happen. It's only when there is a deep community-wide reliance on God himself as king. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as the sole king over them. Human leaders will fail us because we're flawed, every one of us. I'm flawed, Ben's flawed, every elder ever that has or is sitting on the board is flawed. And if life and faith depends on leaders getting it all right, we're in trouble. Yeah, we have responsibility to live under the Lordship of Christ and lead from a place of submission, but we're going to fail you if you expect absolute holiness and righteousness while not taking responsibility for that in your own life first. Don't abdicate your own leadership in this. The people of God were demanding a king and they were abdicating their own leadership. They were abdicating their own responsibility and they were demanding that they not be different and set apart. You know, we all come to the place where we're looking at our own lives and our deep need and our constant need for the grace of God and the blood of Jesus to cover all our sins, then maybe then we'll become understanding and patient with one another on this journey of faith. Israel demands a king because they don't want to take responsibility to lead. They reject their identity as God's chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, set apart to God to reveal what life looks like under his kingship. They reject God's leadership and they just want to blend in. It displeased Samuel, continuing in verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel goes on to warn them. But he also goes on to anoint someone. This is a second thing. An impressive king is anointed over the people. Saul cuts a, cuts a pretty impressive figure in Scripture. I mean, he's, he's not only taller than everybody else, but he's like, he's like the tall, dark, and handsome guy. But it's a bit of a head-scratcher as to what happens here. Let's listen to this. Chapter 9. There was a man, a Benjamin, verse 1 and 2, chapter 9, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, who's, uh, son of Zeor, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, the Benjamite, a man of wealth. So he's a Benjamite, he's wealthy, and he had a son whose name was Saul, handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders on upwards, he was taller than any of the people. And then if we jump over to chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? 
And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the yoke of Tabor. Three men are uh, going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after you come to Gibeath, Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre, before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you, to, uh, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these things, all these signs came to pass that day. So, this is a bit of a head scratcher, right? God says, they're rejecting me. Samuel, they're rejecting me. But then he tells Samuel to go ahead, anoint a king for the people. There will be consequences for having a king. But I find this fascinating. Saul is anointed. He's not looking for the job. We'll get to that in the next point. But then God takes this man. He takes Saul, provides clear signs that he is to be king. Says, God has anointed you to be king. You will deliver his people. And I am going to change your heart and send my spirit to be upon you. So you prophesy. Wow, awesome. But this is a rejection of God. And yet God is anointing it, empowering it, and gifting him to lead. A little bit of tension there? Again, Saul stands out from the people. Tall, dark, and handsome, as the saying goes. But there's something in God's work here that I just find fascinating that God blesses and equips Saul, even though the whole demand for a king comes from a rejection of God himself. Oh, thank you. Look how this all comes about again. Look at what God does. Back in 9.15, he says, now the, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man of the land of Benjamin, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. And that kind of, in my mind, twigs me back to Exodus chapter two, right at the end. God sees the plight of his people and he calls Moses. Here God's kind of, it's, it's almost the same language and God's saying, I'm raising up this man from Benjamin to be a deliverer for my people who are experiencing bondage. The Lord has anointed you to be prince over his people. And that's repeated a number of times in here. This is God's doing. God's people reject him as king, and God raises up a king to save them. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower 
Him, he transforms Saul's heart. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. You will be transformed. Wow. And this is coming out of rejection of God. How, how patient is God with us? How long does he wait? I, I, how patient are we with, with people in our lives? How, how much rejection can you take before you just don't want anything to do with that person? You know, I know there's boundaries we need to put up in our lives to protect our hearts and lives from being abused by others, but, and we're not God. God's patience is way beyond our ability, but just think about how much rejection God faces from his people, and yet he still pursues them relentlessly. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king over them. I'm going to anoint a king. I'm going to send my spirit on this king. I'm going to empower this king. I'm going to change this man. He'll deliver the people from the Philistines. They're rejecting me, but here's my man for the job. Wow. And we know Saul doesn't turn out that great, but then neither does David or Solomon. And you can keep going down the list. God's grace is radical and incomprehensible. He is being rejected repeatedly. He continues to provide for his people in mercy and grace. Not that consequences aren't coming. They will. But the patience of God will not be exhausted, nor the purposes of God thwarted by his people's rebellion and sin. Saul will fail as king. God will work for his glory and the good of his people. And as we trace the kingship through all of the kings, we constantly find people who mess up and fail miserably, but God's gracious purposes remain on track until one king comes, the perfect king who leads his people not from a throne but from a cross, not an impressive king but a broken and scarred and mutilated and bleeding servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, 4, he grew up before him as a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no form and no majesty that we should look to him, contrast to Saul. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is our king. The people demanded a king and God in his grace provided for them in the midst of their rebellion. In the same way God provides for us in Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, living for ourselves, God sent Jesus to die for our sins and provide for our redemption. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. People of Israel demanded a king. But Jesus is the king we did not demand and yet we desperately need. Saul was impressive, but Jesus is the king who is not impressive, but one to whom we must draw near. 
And finally, we see an anointing of Saul, a king who didn't really want to be there anyway. He was reluctant. A reluctant king is presented to the people. Samuel had already anointed Saul in private. Saul had experienced the signs of affirmation that confirmed his calling to be king. Now it needed to be public. This was the vote of affirmation. Samuel repeats the issues. God has been your deliverer, a leader from the Exodus, but you are rejecting him in this request. Look at the end of chapter 10, starting in 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found, so they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So again, it's kind of this fascinating development of the story, like Saul's already been anointed. Saul's had all of this stuff happen to him that's confirmed that he is to lead the people of Israel, that he's God's chosen guy. But then they get to this public ceremony where Samuel says, I'm, now I'm going to set this king before you in the presence of all of you so that you know who he is. And he's like, I'm out. I'm going to go hide, sleeping in the baggage. in a very public way, by even casting lots. I mean, why do they do this at this point, this casting of lots? I, I think it's to reveal that Saul is pictured as God's choice through and through, not Samuel's. That's why this seemingly weird formality of the casting of lots, the lot fell to Benjamin, the lot fell to a certain family, the lot fell to Saul. The casting of lots shows that Samuel hasn't made this choice on his own. There, this is another divine confirmation of Saul's calling. Saul, however, wasn't terribly excited. The text doesn't tell us why, but Saul is hidden among the baggage. Whatever his reasons, Saul seems to not have wanted this. He was reluctant. A reluctant king is presented to the people. But Jesus stands against the contrast to Saul and any other king. Because he was already the king of kings and the lord of lords before he lived and walked on this earth. 
And he willingly set aside his glory and his authority and became a servant. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give life and life abundantly. And when the hour came, Jesus didn't shrink or hide away from being lifted up and exalted. For he knew that the road to the throne was the road to the cross, and he was not reluctant. Kingship in Samuel comes out of rebellion against God. The first king is one that people want. Someone to look up to, literally. But someone whom God must change, empower, and lead. This human king, like every other human leader, will fail. Jesus is the ultimate king that God provides for us in our rebellion. Not who we look for, but who we desperately need. He is the greater king who gives himself for his people, who defeats the enemies and the oppression of sin and Satan and the flesh and lays down his life to set us free, who surrenders the crown of glory for a crown of thorns to show us the extent of his love for us. In this story of Saul, we see the patience and the mercy of God toward a rebellious and impatient people. In the gospel of Jesus, we see the same thing. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. The rebellion of the human heart is the rebellion of Israel. We want to be king in our lives. We want to be like everybody else to be self-ruling, self-sufficient, self-determining. And God in his patience and his grace gives us what we want, but it will be oppressive and painful as we will see as we look at the kings. Having our way in life will cost us. We want to rule our lives our way, but this is a rejection of Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus is clear. We cannot rule over our lives and follow him. Do not make the mistake that Israel made. Keep the kingship where it belongs, with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this, we're reminded of Paul's words in one message where he said these, these things were not writ are written for our encouragement and for a warning. Lord, help us to live under your kingship, under your rulership, under your lordship. Our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body, your earthly existence. It needs to bring glory to him. Lord, thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is not a reluctant king, but a committed king. A king who lays down his life for his sheep. A king who leaves the 99 to seek out the one that's gone astray. 
the king who sweeps the house clean to find the lost coin, the king who looks to the horizon and when the prodigal returns home, jumps up and runs and embraces us and welcomes us home. Who challenges us when we don't celebrate your grace. Father, help us to enter into the joy of our Father who gives himself for us, our Creator who came and lived among us, walked among us, gave himself for us so that we can walk in relationship with you. You are our King. You are our Lord. Help us to live our lives under your authority, overwhelmed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.